Well, I've titled my sermon, Christ and the Fullness of Time, and I'm going to begin by just reading the two verses we will be looking at today. Galatians 4, 4-5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. As Christmas is approaching, uh, there are many churches with services that usually reflect upon, once again, the, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in His birth. And there's usually several passages of Scripture that preachers will turn to in talking about the birth of Christ as they reflect on the Nativity story. Some insights are from the Old Testament prophets, such as Isaiah and Micah, and and those give a a prophetic viewpoint of His birth. There are, of course, others who will touch on the Gospel accounts, particularly Matthew and Luke, which give us insights of His birth from more of a, a narrative point of view. And many times, as I've observed, churches will pretty much stick to one of those two categories for insight. But there are other passages that give us insight into his birth. And I'm thinking of passages in that large section of your New Testament called the Epistles. Now, unlike the prophets who look forward to his birth and the Gospels which give more of a sort of close-up lens of his birth, The epistles give us insight into his birth from more of a theological standpoint. It's it's decades after the Gospels were written, and the apostles, inspired by the Spirit, have had more reflection and more brought to mind about the meaning of the things that happened in Christ's life. And these two verses we're going to look at in Galatians 4 are an example of that. They're packed with profound theological insights of what Christ's birth means for us and for the history of the world. Uh, There are three insights into Christ's birth I'm going to draw out of these two pithy verses. And uh, I'm going to alliterate them. You don't realize the time and sermon prep that goes into alliteration, but I I thought of three common letters. (laughs) We'll look at three things. Here's what I came up with. We will see the climax of His birth. Secondly, the conditions of His birth. And third, the course of His birth. The climax of His birth, the conditions of His birth, and the course of His birth. I chose each of those for a very particular reason. We're going to start with the climax of Christ's birth, starting in verse 4 at the very beginning part. I'm going to read it again. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Now it might seem odd or even wrong to refer to the birth of Christ in terms of being climactic in history. I don't know if when I said climax, if you were thinking of that quite fitting, the beginning of Christ's life. Because we know that it's certainly not the culmination of all that God would do through the Son. 
I mean, there's much more to be done after the birth of Christ. There's, of course, His work of teaching on the earth. There's His work on the cross and His resurrection and His ascension to the right hand of God. There's His future coming in judgment and glory and to establish His kingdom on the earth. But there is a sense in which our passage right here in Galatians 4 views Christ's entry into the world as climactic in history. Because it says He came in the fullness of time. Now it might surprise many, but when you're studying the New Testament and the theology of the advent of Christ, the New Testament actually repeatedly views that first advent of Christ in terms of launching the end of history. We have 2,000 years separating us from that event, but the New Testament views it as the end of history. We're, of course, used to thinking of the second advent as being the very end of history, and of course it is the very end. But biblically, all of history since Christ is considered the end of time. I'll give you some examples in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10 Verse 11, uh, Paul is explaining how all of the events of the Old Testament happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. So we're at the end of the ages when Jesus enters the world. Hebrews 1, verse 2. He has spoken to us in these last days through His Son. Later on in Hebrews 9.26, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. I'll give you one more from Peter. Peter 1 Peter 1.20 puts it this way. He, speaking of Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the, the last times for the sake of you. So from the New Testament standpoint, Christ's birth marks a climax. It marks an end. It's climactic because it's a turning point like no other turning point in the stages of redemptive history. It's a turning point in that God planned it perfectly. All human history is measured by the birth of Christ. The birth of the Messiah. All time before His birth is marked B.C. before Christ. All time after His birth is A.D. in the year of our Lord. And so sometimes Christian historians have referred to world history taking place before Christ as a preparatory history. All ancient history before the birth of Christ is preparatory history. Meaning that since the beginning, every event and every movement and every empire and nation and every migration, everything that's ever happened before Christ was moving the story forward providentially to prepare the world for the Messiah. A history is divinely orchestrated for redemption. 
We call it redemptive history. And what I'd like to do in this, this first point is consider what it means that the fullness of time had come for God to send forth His Son. Commentators point out that the word fullness doesn't just quite mean full, like to the brim, but it actually communicates more the idea of bursting over. I want you to imagine not just a cup of water, but a cup of water that's under a spigot, and now it's overflowing over the brim. That's the kind of fullness that Paul is communicating. It's also used at times for pregnancy, at the very end, when it's about to burst. And the idea is that history is full to the brim and nothing is able to, nothing else has to be done. It's about to burst at the seams. That's the idea of our text in the fullness of time. Uh, This is how God prepared history for sending his son. Uh, Nothing else holding it back. Uh, No other prophecy to be given through a prophet. No other historical circumstances to make the world ready. It was the divinely appointed time. The late R.C. Sproul eloquently put it this way. I love this. He said, quote, The birth of Jesus comes in the fullness of time. History is so ready for it that it's bursting. It's now the time of the decisive moment for God to act. That has radical implications for everything that went before it. All of Old Testament history is moving toward, focusing on, looking forward in expectation and promise to the decisive moment. And once that moment comes, the rest of history looks back and is tethered to it for its significance. End quote. Only R.C. could put something that good. Probably without preparation. Brilliantly put. And so what I would like to do is is really consider the ways that history uh, prepared the way for His birth. And actually, the context of Galatians helps us on this point. I'm just going to sort of summarize the first verses in chapter 4 because context is key. The first verses give us the immediate context before giving us that conjunction, but when the fullness of time. And again, as a way of summary, Paul has been writing to the Galatian converts uh, who have basically been pressured by these Jewish agitators that in order to be joined to Christ in a part of the church, they had to subscribe to um, the law of Moses, and in particular, circumcision. And they were troubling those who were converted Gentiles that they could be part of the church and in the kingdom of God. And of course, Paul refutes that throughout the book and makes the case that it is faith in Christ alone which joins a person to the Lord. And in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4, Paul makes the point by reiterating that the law, meaning the law of Moses with all its ordinances and its regulations, the law 
was never meant to bring freedom from sin to any Jew. But rather, God, in His sovereignty, had so designed redemptive history, He used the law not as a standing place to be right with Him, which would be impossible before a holy God, but the law is like a schoolmaster, or in our text here, it's like a guardian, a trustee of a minor, preparing man to see his condition. That he falls short. That he breaks the whole law. That, that he's under the curse. The law and all that God had been preparing through the ages was to show man, to show Israel and all men the need for Christ. It prepared them for Christ. Uh, not by giving them a good standing or to make them worthy, but just the opposite. The law showed that all fall short of God's holy standards and instead of it freeing them, it actually put them in enslavement under its curse. So Paul is in effect saying, Galatians, brothers, don't let them agitate you. Don't let anyone pressure you to think you could be perfected by that which enslaved you in the first place. And not even God's ancestral people, the Jews. Because all are enslaved. And thus all equally need freedom in Christ. I know we're getting heavy duty with the theology here, but I, I want you to stay with Paul here because this will cause you to more profoundly see the climactic nature of Christ's birth. Paul is making a point that God in His sovereign providence through history had a means to better prepare all of humanity to see their profound need for Him. He says in verse 3, we were enslaved to what he calls the elementary teachings. I'm sorry, the elementary principles of this world. The elementary principles of the world. And I underline that because it's actually profound when you look at the rest of the chapter. I'm not going to turn ahead. But later on in verses 8 and 9, Paul actually makes a shocking link because he's not just talking to the Jews at this point. He again uses that phrase, the elementary principles of the world, to describe the Galatians' pagan past. So in effect, what he's really saying is, look, there's no difference between humans. Those who were under the law of Moses and those pagans who were outside the camp, all of them are enslaved. All thus are in need of equal deliverance and justification in Christ. And so as God was preparing redemptive history, all are in need of freedom, all are enslaved, and in their own ways, Jews and Gentiles were prepared for the coming of the Messiah. When the fullness of time had come, there were remnants of Jews who God drew to Himself who were prepared in a better way than they would have been to see their desperate need of Christ and embrace Him for salvation. 
And there would be many Gentiles whom God was preparing to see their need for Christ. God was preparing man for the fullness of time. And this is especially profound when you consider the scene of Christ's birth. It's really like a a microcosm of the whole age to come. Because you see, God prepared both strands of humanity for Him. He prepared Jews and Gentiles for this Savior. You see Jews, like a remnant of them in Mary and Joseph, and later in His infancy, others such as Simeon and Anna, who were not like the Pharisees and others. They had seen their condition They were weary souls ready to see Christ and embrace Him as their hope. You also see in His childhood the drawing of other Gentiles. You see the Magi who make their way and are prepared in their unique way to seek the King. And they're drawn as sort of a foreshadowing of the Gentiles who would come in and be grafted into the kingdom seeing their desperate need. Uh, Philip Schaff, he's a church historian from the 1800s. He's actually my favorite church historian. He's written like eight volumes. He's considered the authority by many church historians. Uh, He's actually written some of the best material on the topic of preparatory history from the vantage point of both Judaism and heathenism leading up to Christ. And he interestingly puts it in terms of Jews being prepared in a top-down fashion and Gentiles in more of a down-up fashion. I'm going to share sort of a lengthy quote just to show you this concept. Philip Schaff said this, quote, As Christianity is the reconciliation and union of God and man in and through Jesus Christ, the God-man, it must have been preceded by a twofold process of preparation an approach of God to man and an approach of man to God. In Judaism, the preparation is direct and positive, proceeding from above downwards and ending with the birth of the Messiah. In heathenism, it is indirect and mainly, though not entirely, negative, proceeding from below upwards and ending with a helpless cry of mankind for redemption. It's a beautiful and profound how God prepared humanity for Christ. And there's actually a lot of profound ways that if we wanted to go into all the different aspects of how God prepared the world for Christ, we would talk about socially, politically, nationally. There's so many ways God directed the affairs of men and civilizations to make the ancient world ready for the coming of Christ and the spread of His Gospel. I want to throw out a couple just so you see the perfect timing of it. For example, the Romans were past a period of civil wars. It would have been a very different situation in Rome if God had sent Christ like a century earlier. Uh, Their civil wars had ended, and they had just begun a period of peace known as the Pax Romana, uh, making society safer to travel for Mary and Joseph making it safe to travel for Christ in His earthly ministry and the apostles. Add to this, the Romans had just built their famous roads throughout the empire, which would aid in transporting the apostles in evangelism. That's pretty perfect. Greek 
had become widely known as a common language since the time of Alexander the Great's Hellenization in the Greek Empire. That too is a tool that God puts in place because with a common language, it would be easier to exchange ideas and spread the message of Christ and, of course, the whole New Testament written in Greek. God providentially scattered the Jews in their exile and and used their built synagogues as places of preserving the Scriptures and of preserving worship and preserving prophecy. And these would later become places that were uh, platforms for Christ and the apostles to teach. And socially, just to add to all these aids, and there's many, it's well attested by ancient historians that at this point in the Roman Empire, it was perhaps the peak of moral decay, showing the inability of human religions and philosophies to provide a worthy standard of behavior and satisfy the longings of man's soul. One of them, Seneca, he's like a famous philosopher and statesman at the time, living in the first century. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but he had this to say about the moral condition of society at the time. And this is a pagan talking. Seneca said this, The world is full of crime and vices. But more are committed than can be cured by force. There is an immense struggle for iniquity. The crimes are no longer hidden, but open before the eyes. Innocence is not only rare, but nowhere. End quote. And there's other accounts that are very similar. And it was into this dark climate, this dark age, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son who would shine as a light in the darkness and who alone could satisfy humanity's hunger and show them by example and teaching how they are to live. Perfect love for God and neighbor. I think of the lines from O Holy Night. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. Not worth, of course, based on merit, but the worth of a soul being made for joyful relationship with the Creator. Jesus brought the thrill of hope to a weary world in sin. I like what Augustine says, our our hearts are restless until we rest in Him. And so this makes the birth of Christ climactic. The fullness of time when God sent forth His Son. Before moving on, I want to briefly note that the primary action taking place is an act of God. Note that this whole, the main action of this whole verse is not sinners hastening and bringing Christ into the world. It says God sent forth His Son. No one would be able to boast the Messiah came for them. The Jews couldn't boast. No one would be considered the great city from which He would be born. He would be born in the obscure city of Bethlehem. God sent forth His Son as a complete work of Him. And it was a full Trinitarian cooperative work. 
It was planned by God the Father before the history of the world, uh, taken on voluntarily through God the Son, and when the fullness of time had come, He was conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit. This is what is profound about the timing of Christ's coming. And my next two points will be briefer than this. I want to move on to the second half of verse 4 in which we will consider the insight of the conditions of His birth. The conditions of His birth. Paul continues, Born of woman, born under the law. Now, very important conditions are provided here to understand the birth of Christ. And if you were to simply ask someone, what were the conditions of the birth of Christ, you would probably likely get the answer of the physical conditions of His birth, which of course would be a good answer. The, the poor, meager, shabby conditions of the manger. But the conditions that Paul looks at, because it is a theological perspective, is the spiritual conditions of God the Son. The vocation that Jesus would take on as conditions of His incarnation. Both conditions are mentioned here. He was born of woman, and He was born under the law. Both are theological points. So I want to sort of flesh those out. As Paul is describing the spiritual liberty that Jesus brings to souls that are joined to Him and prepared for Him from their bondage, he has two things he wants to make very clear before getting to his redemption. Christ was born of a woman and he was born under the law. Let's consider the significance of each. The first condition is that he would be born of a woman. This was a condition he would take on. Now, this might not seem like a profound insight because we know he's the God man, we know he was a human. But it's actually very foundational to the work He would do as the Savior. He had to be human. We know He had to be human so that He could die. We know He had to become sympathetic as a high priest. But there's actually something else going on here as well. And Paul wants us to see it. Remember that Paul is addressing Jews and Gentiles and how he, God has prepared them to see Jesus as the means of humanity's freedom. And so, in speaking to both, he points out that Jesus is born of woman. It's not enough to point out that he had a Jewish lineage. But Paul more simply says he was born of a woman. And this gives him a unique place as not only the one sent by God for Israel, but as one who was sent for the, as the hope of the world, for all of Adam's enslaved human race. And it actually harkens back to the promise that goes even before Israel all the way to Genesis 3.15. Before there were ever any covenants, before the giving of the law, there was the prophecy in the garden that at the proper time, the woman's offspring would bring victory for the human race over the serpent. Or more holistically, over Satan and sin and death. And that's really the story of the Bible. That age after age, everything is moving toward 
This time, this fullness of time when God would send the great deliverer from the woman to deliver and reverse the curse. And there's like all these examples throughout your Old Testament. You're supposed to almost wonder, could this be it? Could Seth be it? Nope. Noah? Nope, he falls short. Moses? David? The height of the monarchy? Nope, he falls short. And age after age, all of God's people and all of the world, God skips over them all. None are the great deliverer until the fullness of time. And the, the climax here is that God Himself has to come down. God Himself has to come down from a woman. And there's theological significance in the virgin birth for Jesus to be born as the federal head of a redeemed humanity. Uh, he would be the second Adam. Uh, the first Adam was tempted and failed to meet the condition of obedience to inherit eternal life. And sometimes we think of that, whatever that arrangement was, that probation, some call it a covenant of works, there's been different names for it, that perhaps God moved past it. Or another way to see it is, maybe it's still in place, age after age, and every time someone is born, they keep failing and falling short of the glory of God. And when Jesus is born, He's born into that condition as the second Adam and then he gets tempted by Satan. And Jesus passes where all others failed. He's the true second Adam, and he's also the true son of Abraham, which Paul makes clear in the last chapter of Galatians. He's, he's the offspring that Abraham was pointed to. He keeps the law in all its fullness and secures the promises of restorative blessing for the world. He's born of woman. There's a second condition he takes on, sort of linked with that, and is that he's born under the law. Born under the law. And if you remember, we just said in the previous verses, it's not a good thing to be under the law. To be under the law for anyone else means enslavement and a curse. And Jesus is born under the law, in total identification with those under its bondage. And yet, totally set apart from all under its bondage. Because it doesn't hold Him in bondage. He perfectly fulfills the law in all of its demands, in thought, word, and deed, since conception. Hebrews 4.15 says, He was tempted as we are in every respect, yet without sin. And we're meant to feel the weightiness of this, this turning point in history. Thousands of years of sinners multiplying over the earth in bondage under the law, under God's righteous standard, both humanity at large and God's chosen people Israel, rebelling against their Creator, and rather than the fullness of time being about God sending His Son to judge a world that was ripe for judgment, the fullness of time comes and He sends His Son to be born among them. Taking on their conditions and fulfilling them like no other could. 
And Jesus is born, fulfilling what Adam failed at. Fulfilling what Israel failed at. And this ties to the final insight about His birth. Having joined Himself under the law and its condemnation, there's a course. And that course is heading to the cross. Having looked at its, the climax of His birth and the conditions of His birth, we need to remember there was a course for this. And this is the last point. The course of His birth. The course of His birth. Why did He come? Why born under a woman? Why born under the law? Verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's important that we view the birth of Christ as being on a course. I chose that word strategically. I wanted to pick something. I was thinking trajectory. All these different terms. I got the C. Course. Because we're guilty sometimes of looking at the birth of Christ and isolating that point in time. Meaning, His birth isn't to be admired as an isolated point in time. It's good to admire it, but we're not supposed to stay there. He was born in order that He would grow through His life under the law, under all the expectations of God, with the goal that He would fulfill the law and make a great exchange. He was on a course to fulfill the Father's demands and become approved by Him. But as He was under the law fulfilling it, He was going to save those who were under the law in its curse. And this is the great exchange. His perfect law-keeping life of righteousness given to those who fall short. Given to those under the law who fall short of the glory of God. And He bears their sin. And He goes to the cross and He bears the curse of the law in a sinner's death. And this was His course. We're not supposed to just admire the, the manger scene and, and you know, get the warm, fuzzy feelings and just move on. This was the course that Jesus had. He would go from the cradle to the cross. This was the point in the very beginning when the angel told Joseph that he would save his people from their sins. Hark the Herald has that line that says, Born that man no more may die. And in the words of this verse in Galatians, this would be an act of redemption. It says to, to redeem those under the law. That His people might receive adoption. This, of course, speaks of the institution of of the slave market, which would be familiar to the Jews and the Gentiles in the ancient world. A slave's freedom was able to be purchased. And there were a lot of children even in the slave market, and sometimes they could be purchased and adopted into a family. And this is what Jesus does with His people. 
By living under the law, Jesus frees those who are enslaved by making that great exchange by His blood and perfect sacrifice as a substitute. He redeems hopeless men and women from the slave market of sin. And this is the profound glory of Christmas. This is what God brought through Christ in the fullness of time. And I want to remind you and I that it's not merely the fullness of time in history and for the world at large, but it's personal to you and I in our testimonies. If we're joined to Christ, we've had this great exchange. We were lost. We were hopeless. And we were enslaved. And when the fullness of time had happened in our lives... God, through many providences and many circumstances and every perfect condition, God sent forth His Son to shine the light of His glory in our hearts. That we would receive Him by faith. You ever think about your testimony that way? All the different things that had to be perfectly in place in the fullness of time before the Lord redeemed you and adopted you as His own. That's what we need to think when we see that manger scene in our mind. We need to think of the Lord who came in the fullness of time, not just for a world, a massive society, but for you. Born for you, that He would redeem you and adopt you to have sonship. Uh, This is the profound glory of Christmas for history and for the world and for you and I who have been redeemed by His grace. I'd like to close by quoting another larger piece from Philip Schaff again. By the way, I recommend his church history. It is dense at times. It's in the public domain online as well. But he gives so many great insights into this coming of Christ. I'm going to read a few paragraphs to end this. So not just a quote. It's a mega quote, but I think it's worth it. And I don't think I could top it. So I'm going to close with just This word about Christ. And then I'll close. Philip Schaff. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His only begotten Son, the desire of all nations, to redeem the world from the curse of sin and to establish an everlasting kingdom of truth, love, and peace for all who should believe on His name. In Jesus Christ, a preparatory history, both divine and human, comes to its close. In Him culminate all the previous revelations of God to Jews and Gentiles. And in Him are fulfilled the deepest desires and efforts of both Gentiles and Jews for redemption. In His divine nature as Logos, He is, according to St. John, the eternal Son of the Father and the agent in the creation and preservation of the world and in all those preparatory manifestations of God which were completed in the Incarnation. In His human nature as Jesus of Nazareth, He is the ripe fruit of the religious growth of humanity with an earthly ancestry which St. Matthew traces to Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews, and St. Luke to Adam, the father of all men. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and in Him also is realized the ideal of human virtue and piety. 
He is the eternal truth and the divine life itself, personally joined with our nature. He is our Lord and our God, yet at the same time, flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone. In Him is solved the problem of religion, the reconciliation and fellowship of man with God, and we must expect no clearer revelation of God nor any higher religious attainment of man than is already guaranteed and actualized in His person. But as Jesus Christ thus closes all previous history, so on the other hand, He begins an endless future. He is the author of a new creation, the second Adam, the father of regenerate humanity, the head of the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that fills all in all. He is the pure fountain of that stream of light and life which has since flowed unbroken through nations and ages and which will continue to flow till all the earth shall be full of His praise and every tongue shall confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The universal diffusion and absolute dominion of the Spirit and life of Christ will also be the completion of the human race, the end of history, and the beginning of a glorious eternity. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at Christ. We're in awe that you would send your Son, that you would rescue us, that you would redeem us from the curse. Lord, we remember your perfect timing and your perfect plan of redemption. And we look forward, Lord, to see the finished work that You have to do through Your Son. And we know the timing for that will be perfect as well. Lord, we thank You that we get to live at the end of history in the perfect finished work of Christ. Help us to shine as His lights. Help us to grow closer to Him. Help us to remember His birth and give glory to You in the highest. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.